Welcome back to the Act Two podcast, <laughs> podcast for the real life working screenwriter. Uh, Josh claps at the beginning of our recordings, but <laughs> and I never tell him that he doesn't have to do that because it's only for video. <laughs> so, uh, before we launch into our episode today, uh, which we're really excited about and also drinking for too, um, uh-huh. please remember to subscribe to the podcast so that you don't miss out on any of our awesome topics. If you have time, give us a rating, write a comment, tell us how bad or good we're doing. And mm-hmm. if you'd rather DM us, you can, with questions, comments, topics, suggestions, or just want to say hi, you can reach out to us at act2writers at gmail.com. That's all spelled out. Or on our Instagram at act2writers. Yeah, definitely reach out to Tasha and ask her for writing advice and maybe to be your mentor. <laughs> <laughs> Tasha. Wait, did we introduce ourselves? Who cares? <laughs> Tasha, I'm so excited. <laughs> I'm so excited. We are continuing our discussion about Back to the Future, and today we are talking about the second act, otherwise known as Act Two. And as we all know, this is my favorite movie. I love talking about it. I'm excited to talk about it. And again, unofficially, we're sponsored by Casamigos. Clink, clink. That was my. That was my drink. There we go. Clink, clink. Mm. <laughs> so good, Casamigos. Thank you, all George right. Clooney. So we all know that Act Two is the hardest part of any movie. I feel like usually, I'll speak for myself here, but this feels general. Usually, you know your opening, and it's really badass, and you know your ending. That's also badass. But it's this endless desert march that lies between act one and act three that I feel like the real writing really comes in. Interesting. I don't disagree. I'm just... Okay. I was like, am I still like, <laughs> struggles with act two? <laughs> I, maybe. Well, I don't know. I think it's more of like the second half of act two. Because, you know, we have like mm-hmm. act two A and act two B. And that act two B is always pretty difficult for me. Yeah, I struggle with all of Act 2. Okay. Well, this is a great Act 2. Everything about this Act 2 is just almost flawless. It's so good. And as Josh was saying, you usually have what's called Act 2A or Act 2.1, as people will call it, which is basically the first half of your Act 2 leading up to the midpoint of your movie. And then Act 2B or Act 2.2 is from the midpoint of your movie, which is around page 50 or so to your break into act three. So we're going to talk about all of act two today. Yep. Oh, I'm so um, excited. I'm really excited also. So before we get into things, I, I want to just tell you one something quickly. Please. I looked on, uh, I looked online and I looked at like the audience score and like the general feel of Back to the Future. I never really had looked at this before. And I just oh. want to tell you, the IMDb score for Back to the Future is 8.5 out of 10. On Metacritic, it's 87%. And on Rotten Tomatoes, it's 96%. I don't know why it's not 100 in all of those categories. I completely agree. Like, what could people have a problem with that they'd be like, no, that's a three star? I had this really bad feeling about something. 
Oh no. I wonder if Back to the Future is so loved and people just revere this movie that people are going to start turning against it because so many people like it because there just has to be those people in the world who just hate awesome shit. So you think it's 8.5 rating instead of 10 is just because haters going to hate. <laughs> yeah, I've never heard you say that before, but yes. <laughs> so anyway, I just wanted to tell you that before we jump in. Generally, I want to kind of talk about what I learned from watching this so closely and mm -hmm. also simultaneously reading these act two of the original script from 1981 along with it. What's very interesting is that the final movie has a huge cause and effect. Like that's what's driving the story forward. I think a big problem for me and most writers is that act two can feel like such a slog and we usually get the note back um, from people who are reading our stuff and they usually say, what is the engine of your story? So if you failed in your act two, people will often say, what is the engine of your story? And what that means is what is driving your story forward? Why are my characters propelled through the story? And why do I care as an audience member what the hell's even going on? And I mm -hmm. think in the bad version of a script, and certainly in my first drafts, um, you'll find that stuff just happens. It's just plot points, right? One after the other. And that is actually what you will find in the 1981 draft. Stuff just happens. There's no cause and effect whatsoever. So I think kind of a theme that I want to talk about is how do, does Robert Zemeckis finally execute in the final product such a tight cause and effect? And I think we can kind of talk about the different turning points that are propelling back to the future forward so beautifully and giving it that engine. I agree. Also, so just kind of generally, like when I when I pitch for movies, the first thing I say when I when I talk about and then we break into act two is I talk about the promise of the premise. And that's kind of a general term for the fun of your movie at the top of act two. That's because you've set up everything in act one and now you're into the venture of the movie and it's the promise of the premise. It's why I saw the trailer and decided to go watch the movie. So usually that would be like, let's say in Ocean's Eleven, act 2.1, so the first section of Act 1, the promise of the premise is Danny Ocean breaking down the risks of the heist. And we get the super fun intercuts of like setting up the heist, putting the team together that, that we've already put together, sorry, in Act 1. You're putting that, that team in motion. So in Back to the Future, Act 2.1, a promise of the premise, is this kid from 1985 experiencing life in his hometown in 1955. So it's this great marty fish out of water situation yeah and something that's so great about this that i don't want to jump too far ahead but in a lesser story i feel like marty would be the person who had to figure out how to get the time machine working and it's like that would be his one goal i need to get back to 1985 how do i do this how do i do this but in this case that's what doc brown is for so marty has his whole other ad obviously adventure that we're going to talk about but I just, it's so brilliant that this is our character and he doesn't even have to worry about how to get back to 1985. He leads that, he just leaves it up to somebody else. It's great. And it speaks to what you said in our act one conversation about how while this is a sci-fi movie, technically, because it deals with time travel, it doesn't feel like a sci-fi movie because it's only kind of bookended by that. And because Marty's not talking about time travel really at all during the course of act two, it barely comes up. 
You know, just to go back real quickly, the uh, what you were saying about cause and effect, I'm pretty sure the South Park guys, they had something that went around like some like this little viral speech where they had these, these rules where in all of their scenes, they have to say, but, and therefore, in order to like push each scene, you know, Cartman does this, but it's whatever, whatever. And if they ever get to a point where it's, and then between scenes, you're pretty much fucked. Like there is no cause and effect. It's you're, those are just plot points. And I feel like back to the future is a perfect example of, but, Oh, and therefore this happens and, but this mm -hmm. happens and, and it's just constantly moving and changing and changing. It's a fantastic example of that. So I feel like that's probably the best way to structure how we talk about this. And of course we can geek out in, in various areas, but can't wait. <laughs> so to me, one of the first parts that feels like a turning point is Marty has he's traveled through time at the top of act two he's you know crashed into old man peabody's barn and mm -hmm. that, that fun scene with some callbacks to act one in there but the real turning point to me comes in the next scene when he slams on his brakes and he pulls over to see the lion estate entrance with the statues but they're only just starting to build the street and the houses that he lives on and i think it's important because one He's that's the moment he's like, oh, this is not a dream because he keeps telling himself this is a dream. This is a dream. He realizes, no, that this is something more than that. And two, the DeLorean breaks down here. So Boom. the alarm goes off. Plutonium is empty. He now has to hide the DeLorean behind a billboard. So now we know he's stuck in 1955. What is he going to do about that? And I think it's also great because another effect of that is you don't have Marty driving into town <laughs> in a DeLorean. <laughs> you get yeah. him having to walk into town, which of course gives a very different feel. If Imagine if Marty drove the DeLorean into town, the movie would be very different, right? Because everyone would be freaking out, reacting to him in this suit, in his car. No, it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's very toned down once Marty actually does go into town. And it's because he was able to leave the DeLorean behind. And he does that because of a story reason. So that's me feels like the first... That's that's a prime example of like cause and effect happening in many different areas. Yeah, I like that. So this is our first obstacle. At the top of your act two, you tend to need to have a first obstacle that raises the stakes again. And that happens right at the top of act two where it should. Yeah. This is real. I need plutonium and I'm stuck here. Then you get to the next scene where it's our fun kind of fish out of water. Wait, moment. wait, wait, wait. Marty's saying I need plutonium. No, but that's, we know that that's the problem. All right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's the problem. <laughs> Agreed. One out of plutonium. <laughs> okay. He's but I mean, that's a, that's a good point. He doesn't say shit. He doesn't, he doesn't spell it out for you. We know we get everything. There's no dialogue here because Marty has no one to talk to. Yeah. He doesn't know what's going on. We get it all through visuals. So also awesome. And also not something that happens in the script I actually texted texted josh my favorite part of the script today where marty finds out he's in 1952 in the case of the script and he's like 1952 oh my gosh i have traveled 30 years into the past <laughs> oh no what am i to do like quite literally says that and of course you don't get any yeah. of that here just to clarify you're talking about the first draft of the script yes the first draft. not yeah anyway so marty he ditches his delorean he hides it. He pushes the DeLorean by himself behind a sign. <laughs> oh, man. I never thought about that. <laughs> hey, listen. I'm just 
first of all, it's weird picking apart my favorite movie of all time. It's just these weird little things that I think I would probably have hiccups in when I'm writing a script where I'd be like, well, wait a minute. He's got to help ask someone to help him push this thing by the door and behind something. And now this person's part of his story and blah, blah, blah. Anyway. Interesting. They get away. They get away with it. So yeah, he, you he definitely buy that. He fucking hulks out. He pushes it behind the lines of state sign. And then he just runs like a couple miles, I guess, two miles. into yeah. two miles into um, Hill Valley where uh, he digs a newspaper out of the garbage. <laughs> Handily, someone throws one right into the trash right in front of him, which is great. Oh, <laughs> uh, anyway. But of course, there's set up before that, which is also really great. I think just all of the the fun of being a fish out of water in 19 in the 1950s. You see, you know, it's a Barbara, right. it's a Barbara Stanwyck movie, a Ronald Reagan movie, the 50s records. It's all really great. And the, the big thing, of course, the clock tower strikes. The clock tower is still working in this time. Mm-hmm. Very cool. But you if you imagine putting yourself in Marty's position right now, in your character's position, if you were writing this movie. I'm suddenly stuck in a different time period. I need to know what the fuck is going on. Who do I go find? I got to go find Doc Brown because he's the one who helped me and he's alive in this time period. And so that's the thing driving Marty. And as much as he's a fish out of water and kind of open mouthed agape at looking at all the stuff that's going on, he has forward drive and that he finds a phone book in a diner. He tries to call Doc Brown, pulls out the paper, puts it in his pocket because at least there's the address on there. And then he goes and orders some 1980s drinks. And that's actually stuff from the original script. He does order a tab. Um, Mm -hmm. But in the script, he also asks for sweet and low. And people start getting suspicious of him that he's (laughs) asking for things that don't make any sense. Another great moment and payoff is Mayor Goldie Wilson. It's a great payoff. Also comes later, Joshua. Okay, I'm jumping ahead. I'm just so excited. Okay, let's go. All right. <laughs> One All right. thing I noticed, by the way, here, which I don't, even, I, I've never noticed this before, but like this, um, this co- this common reoccurrence of sugar being an issue. Have you noticed this? You know, no. But I guess there is a because don't they drink diet Pepsi in the first act, and they make a reference to diet soda. That I don't remember. Oh, well, what are you talking about? Well, I'm talking about how in the act one dinner scene, it focuses on George pouring like rig- really sugary cereal into his bowl for dinner. And Marty's oh. giving him a look like that's disgusting. And then here in this scene, as Marty comes to the, the dining room uh, bar, the diner bar, he's asking for something with no sugar in it. And so the guy just gives him a coffee. And then you see next to him, actually, when Marty enters the diner, you see the guy at the bar who ends up being his dad pouring sugar into a bowl and ends up being a sugary bowl of cereal. Duh. Do you want me to geek out about something or should I just let you go? I want you to. All right. So I'm sorry to say this, but we have to go back to act one. That moment in that scene you're talking about where he's pouring the cereal or the food or whatever it is, is actually, so before that moment happened in the script, there's actually a scene that was cut out of the final movie where a next door neighbor comes over with his young daughter and the the daughter's selling the cereal, kind of like how girls sell Uh, Girl Scout cookies now. And he basically forces George to buy this cereal. And Marty's off to the side. And it's this moment where he's like, just say no, dad. And George doesn't. He ends up buying it. And so when we see it in the first act of the movie, 
that's kind of in reference to that scene where he's just overpouring all of the cereals to be oh, like, hey, I'm, I'm a little bitch and I can't say no. I wonder George if they McFly. shot that and they just cut it from the original or if they cut it from the movie. So you They did shoot have... it because I, I, I saw stills of it. Oh, shit. Interesting. Yeah. Well, in this scene as well, dad is, is eating sugary cereal, um, which is, I don't know, it's nothing. They don't focus on it really, but I think it's an interesting detail because it kind of very slightly highlights the difference between father and son, which I think is just mm -hmm. kind of an awesome, subtle thing to pay attention to. So I think another turning point is actually here. There's a few in this in this diner scene, but one is, of course, the reveal of George McFly. And to me, like this is like one of the most iconic shots in all of Back to the Future. There are two here. One when like it's the reveal that George McFly is sitting next to him and they both have their hand up on their heads in the same exact way. And then, mm -hmm. the, you know, the turn when, when Biff says, Hey McFly. Mm -hmm. And then the next epic shot I feel like is like the close on George eating. And then Marty's just slowly peering out. Like yeah. the camera in the background. Just like, <laughs> Oh my God. <laughs> It's amazing. Yeah, his reaction shots in this movie are so good. And this is when, like, I mean, I know that we're kind of off and running in the second act, but, like, things now, like, as a viewer, I feel like things are just coming together. And even from, like, a writing point of view, it's like, now, the, like, the worlds have just merged. into Marty's old world is in with his dad's world. And this is just, it's so much fun to watch. It's yeah. amazing. And what's so cool about this moment, too, is it's such an example of cause and effect. Because let's say he never met his dad in this diner. All Marty would do is he would go get Doc's address and he'd find Doc and he'd be like, cool, Doc, like, let's fix this and let me go back in time. And no problem, I'll stay in the house until you, know, you finish this. But now that his dad is here and he's met his dad, there's no way he's going to stay in the house and not somehow try to talk to dad or learn more about dad. That's not yeah. going to happen. So that is another great cause and effect that makes the movie possible. I agree. To me, and you can disagree, but I kind of think the, the Goldie moment is a bit of a turning point as well. So Goldie shows up as a janitor at the diner, um, and we've seen him in Act 1 as this mayoral candidate. And the reason I feel like it's important is because Marty's like, hey, like, oh my gosh, you're going to be mayor someday. And... Goldie's like, yeah, and he suddenly gets the idea seemingly in that moment that he wants to run for mayor. And so I think as an audience member, I'm now clued into the fact that, oh, shit, Marty can change the future by just yeah. saying very simple things. And so I that agree. to me also feels like a turning point and a moment of cause and effect. Totally. I love it. <laughs> I I'm not even going to say anything. <laughs> I, I feel yeah, like I've been stumbling over everything you're going to say, so I'm just going to sit back and relax. <laughs> No, I need your Back to the Future expertise. Um, actually, I want to speak to you. Something you said in Act One that had been kind of bothering me, where you said it was such a huge coincidence that Marty went back at the exact time that his parents were meeting, and you felt that it was a flaw in the movie. I didn't. I don't know if I necessarily used the word flaw. I may have leaned that towards. Word in your mouth. <laughs> I. Why? What were you going to say? Are you going to defend it? A little bit. Okay, great. Let's hear it. Well, do you feel differently after rewatching Act Two? No, not at all. Because Doc <laughs> doesn't know George and Lorraine, so it's like, what's this date? Oh, I, I went back. I hit like it's Doc had happened to hit his head at the same exact time that the Enchantment Under the Sea dance is happening. Right. More like fate. But you know, it's interesting. 
Ooh, they do kind of play into like the idea of destiny. So maybe. I'm your density. I'm your density. Maybe there's some magical destiny to Back to the Future, or maybe I'm just fucking overthinking this and it's a movie. (laughs) How dare you, sir? (laughs) (laughs) So I was going to say... Um, to advocate for the coincidence that Joss Whedon Mm -hmm. has a philosophy that coincidences are okay so long as they're bad for your characters. So like, for example, if you solve a problem with a coincidence or you give your hero a huge leg up because of a coincidence, that's just lazy storytelling. But if a coincidence ends up complicating your story, that can really work. And to me, I think that's the case here where the coincidence really causes the whole story to take place. Without this coincidence, as I said, Marty would just go to Doc Brown and the movie would be over. Zero problems in this movie. Okay. <laughs> you don't buy it. You don't buy it. No, I'm in. I'm in. I'm going <laughs> to use something like this one day as well. And I'm like, Back to the Future did it. <laughs> no, I buy it completely. Trust me. I do. So another cause and effect moment, which is so great. Obviously, if you see your dad from high school in a diner, you're going to kind of chase after him and be like, what the fuck? And that's Mm -hmm. exactly what Marty does, even though he probably should be going to Doc Brown's. He is going after his dad and he ends up saving his dad from getting hit by a car. So Marty has changed everything (laughs) because of this kind of impulsive moment where he saves his dad. So again, cause and effect. It's all driven by Marty's emotions, by Marty's character. It's not just stuff happens. Mm hmm. So I want to say that a key difference to how like Marty meets his mom in the original draft in 1981 is an example of stuff just happening, where Marty's just walking around, he decides just on a whim that he's going to go back and see his old house, and his old house is there, and his mom lives there. And he thinks his grandmother is his mom, and he rushes up to the door, but of course it turns out that that's his grandmother, and... Eileen is the name of his mom in this script, is 17 years old, kind of in the back of the house. And that's how they meet for the first time, which is very boring. And Marty still passes out, but he just passes out because he's just so flustered over seeing his mom at 17 years old. So a huge difference than what happens here. I'm just having a thought because we're leaning so heavily into cause and effect, which is the way it should be, I feel like, in a second act, right? Yeah. And I feel like if you can accomplish what Back to the Future did in Act One, where it was so heavily character-based, that if you can just establish all of the relationships, you can establish who's who, you don't even have to do any character work. And I mean, there's a minimal character work in Act Two, but it, you can focus so much on what you're saying, the cause and effect. Yeah. Now, that's a really interesting point because you're right. Once he's on the ride and he jumps into Act Two, you're on the ride. We don't need to stop to be like, oh, like why would Marty intellectually choose to make this choice? Like yeah. you just know who Marty is, what he's going to do. You already know who George McFly is, and you already know who Lorraine is. So, we're just on the ride. Yeah, basically act 2 is Lorraine and George playing against type of what we think think of her uh and learning about George who we already know that's how he is. And by the way, I, we're not going to get into this now, but I cannot wait until we're finally done with this. And we get to talk about Marty McFly's arc throughout Back to the Future because that's that's a whole that should be a fucking episode. Anyway, I'm excited all right, keep to talk going. about that too. All right. Yeah. So one of my favorite scenes in the whole movie is when Marty wakes up 
and thinks that he's just had a horrible nightmare. And Lorraine is kind of dabbing his head with a cloth and is like, oh, everything's fine. And where's my pants? Um, and, like a, a British mom, mother. And his mom has, has put his pants on her hope chest, which is really dramatic. <laughs> really, when you think about it. But this scene was not in the original script, which is very sad, but also illustrative of how these things grow over time. Um, what happens right. in the script is Marty just passes out because he's so flustered about seeing mom at 17. And then suddenly Doc Brown is there to bring him home, bring him, mm -hmm. quote unquote. So this whole scene came later and it's one of my favorites, which should be an example of how re the story is told in rewriting <laughs> oftentimes. <laughs> mm -hmm. So we're, we're going scene by scene after all, but uh, I don't care because I love it. So the, <laughs> the next scene is actually, so Marty meets his family when they're young. You get the fun joke of Uncle Joey, the little baby, being in the behind bars in his playpen. Um, yeah. And it's an interesting kind of repeat of the Act One family dinner, um, which I think is kind of interesting. But to me, one of the shittiest, laziest jokes of the whole movie comes in this section. Let's hear it. Can you guess what it is? What I think it is? <laughs> There's actually a couple like just throwaway jokes where, is it when he leaves, he's like, I hope you never have a kid like that it's like this is all from upbringing it's not terrible though it's kind of, like it's i still fun. kind of chuckle at it but uh. i think the laziest joke of the whole thing because the jokes are usually so clever in this it's him watching jackie gleason and marty's like oh i've seen this one before it's a classic I'm like oh what do you mean it's it's brand new it's like no it's a rerun like, what's a rerun that's me is the most on the nose joke in the entire movie wow i'm actually kind of surprised by that Really? Yeah. I, I, I actually don't mind that joke at all. I think at that point, the reason why I mind it is because Marty already knows at this point that he's in 1955. Why would he say that it's a rerun? Why would he say he's seen it before and it's a classic? Like, I feel like that slip is lazy writing. Yeah, but isn't this just the fun of the scene is to show this guy who got off of a boat, like a sailor, <laughs> mixed in where he's like they're like looking at him like what the fuck i will say this i do think that scene could have probed a bit more into marty and made him kind of like lie and wiggle out of his uh, wiggle out of the situation because as it stands now they're just kind of like letting it fly and they write him off as just kind of like this weird guy and it's like don't ever have a kid like that he's fucking weird well what would you want more of? i can't even believe i can't even believe i'm having this conversation i feel like i'm i'm like I'm going to be mad at myself when I get done with this. <clears throat> I feel like I would want the father to be like, what's a rerun? And then Marty having to answer what a rerun is. Mm, I see. Just a little more uncomfortability from Marty. Yes. And when they're like, oh, we have two TVs or, you know, then they're like, no one has two TVs. Someone asks them like, how do you have two TVs? I guess he says you're rich. But point is, is like, yeah, to make it more uncomfortable and, and really stretch out the moment. But I guess the flip side, it's not really about that. It's more so about Lorraine and Marty. So it's kind of pointless. I get it. Never mind. I take it back with everything I said. You still love the scene and it's amazing and it's perfect. Yeah. Fuck yeah. <laughs> so the next scene, and this is, again, cause and effect. The, re the thing that really propels Marty out of the house in this scene and onto the next scene is that his mom... Oof. Gets real handsy and, yeah. and fills Marty up underneath the table, which prompts Marty to stand up and just bolt. 
And again, like that small cause and effect within the scene then prompts him to be running to the next location in the next scene. So all of that to me is just a really great lesson to, to keep that momentum going. Yeah. And so in the next scene, he's finally following up on Doc Brown's address and it's this giant mansion. And maybe we remember from act one that his mansion was taken away from him from the small clip that we saw of the newspaper article, but maybe not in the draft actually from the original draft he calls attention to the fact that wait you're rich like what how did you used to live here this this is actually a shopping mall back in my day but here you don't call attention to it it's all again visual background stuff and to me that's another extreme strength of this movie is that it causes the audience to be actively piecing things together and so i feel extremely satisfied as an audience member that I'm remembering from act one, that oh yeah, this was, he didn't live in this awesome house. He lived in a shithole <laughs> and no one has to tell me that. And I think that that's part of what lends the fun and adventure to the movie is that I yeah. play an active role in the, in the storytelling. I completely agree. That's it's something that I just kind of remembered rewatching this. I've thought about this before, but it really does put the viewer or reader in the driver's seat and you really kind of like fill in these gaps and i think that's fucking great and i don't think enough stories do that currently you know now we answer every single question and this is like you know you can just see the gaps or you can see the notes that would come from this script or this movie currently mm -hmm. it'd be i mean obviously they couldn't have like the incest moment and this <laughs> i mean yeah uh, you know like these little moments and like well how do they know doc brown how's this 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 it <sighs> That's what's so great about this movie. It's like doing so many different things. Yeah. It does feel like a lot of notes you get nowadays kind of get logicked to death. But I wonder if that's not a case of the director having written the script. That's true. Like, I've often had to write things where it's like, let's be on the nose now for the draft, just for the read. Let's be really mm -hmm. on the nose so everyone understands it when they read it. But when we go to start talking to directors, let's have the conversation with the director and be like, hey, let's make this more subtle. So maybe it's just yeah. a case of Robert having directed it as well. That's true. So it shows up at Doc Brown's address. There's It takes some effort to, for him to convince him that he is Marty from the future. Um, and at one point to do that, he pulls out a photo from his wallet that becomes really key in tracking the stakes of the movie. But right now he's just pulling it out very organically. And he's like, look, there's something in this photo that's proof that I am from the future. My sister is wearing a sweatshirt that says class of 1984. Now later, of course, this photo will be used in the plot. It's very important. But right now, when we introduce it, it's serving a totally different purpose. It's solely here to convince Doc that he's telling the truth. And to me, that was a really interesting lesson on how to properly use props in your movie. <laughs> yeah, no, I completely agree. That's a great moment. Such a great moment. And there's a lot of these moments throughout that just feel really organic that then pay off later. So after Marty kind of fully convinces Doc he takes him to the DeLorean and there's some, a bit of an exposition moment of get, getting Doc on board with what the hell this machine is. And Doc's excited that he finally invented something that works. And here's where he's like, we've got to get you home. So now it's very yeah. clear that is the mission of the movie. We got to get you home. And so we cut immediately to Marty playing that video from the parking lot in act one. And the big takeaway here is that it's going to take 1.21 gigawatts to power the DeLorean. 
And Doc, of right. course, freaked out. Because, like, how the fuck do you get 1.21 gigawatts? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's amazing. <laughs> what the fuck is a gigawatt? No one knows. No one cares. It's just buy it. All, anyone who knows is just Doc Brown. That's it. Um, mm-hmm. And in the script, it's actually not a gigawatt. That that came later. And it was not 1.21. And it was an atomic bomb that they needed to yeah. do this, not lightning. Um, so crazy. So crazy. So we follow Doc. He runs out, freaking out. Follow him. Again, that, that forward momentum. He's running out right back into his house where he's talking to Thomas Edison, his picture, which we've seen already in 1985. So again, that's called back. And I think that's important, too, because nobody like Marty doesn't look at those framed photos and is like, hey, I remember those photos. Nobody calls attention to it. It's the audience remembering. I have a question. Yeah. Does Doc Brown have the same dog breed that he has in 1955 to 1985? Yes. Is Einstein the same as Copernicus? Yes. That's interesting. For me as a kid watching it, I was always like, is that the same dog? Me too. That's, I was wondering, I used to think the exact same thing. Yeah. And even like, to this, like I thought there would be some weird payoff. Like this dog was the yeah. one that time traveled from, you know, 1985. It's weird. Maybe it is though. Maybe they did that specifically to create these questions. Or maybe that was, well, I don't know. Because I just feel like I know people whose dogs die and they get a different breed after they die. Because they can't stomach to look at the same one. Oh, really? I've actually known more people who do the opposite. Well, maybe my theory was just completely (laughs) collapsed. (laughs) You're wrong. All right. right. (laughs) Interesting. All right. Well, that's just something out there about why that's the case. Yeah. So anyway. So I think another big turning point in this scene is Doc tells Marty. The only power source capable of generating 1.21 gigawatts of electricity is a bolt of lightning. And you mm-hmm. get that great moment of, what'd you just say? Is that a bolt of lightning? Um, <laughs> great. <laughs> but preceding this very moment, Marty, again, in a similar kind of family photo moment, pulls out his clock tower flyer and to prove to doc that jennifer loves him saying like i have something to go home to doc like i have this girl she's so awesome look she loves me and pulls out this clock tower flyer and only when doc then proceeds to say we need electricity from a lightning bolt does marty put the two together so again very cool cause and effect use of props amazing yeah so to me this is our midpoint would you agree I would agree because two things happen. One, they also look at this, uh, you know, your prop, the picture that's disappearing now, which I think is also brilliant because the oldest brother is disappearing first. Mm-hmm. Like this is obvious, but like I feel like could have been overlooked. Big brother first, sister second. Marty happens to be the youngest, so he's going third. But going back to the midpoint, not only does it kind of give us this ticking clock of like we need to get to this bolt of lightning, but also I'm going to fucking disappear if we don't get to this bolt of lightning or get you know, get me sent back. And it's the plan. Now we have a plan in motion because up until this moment, Marty's just been kind of like searching. He's been running, trying to figure out what to do, what to do. And thank God Doc Brown's here because he's going to take care of the problem. But now they have now Marty's like second plan. Exactly. Midpoint is we now have a plan. 
the story's going to move in a different direction. And Marty has his line. He's like, okay, cool, man. Like, I'm just going like, to spend a week here. It'll be cool. Like, I got to get to check out 1955. And Doc's like, no fucking way. You interact with yeah. no one. And there's this kind yeah. of awkward pause. It's like, I might have bumped into my parents. And <laughs> now, not only do we have a plan, so we have a solve to all of our problem that has come before in the top of Act 2, but now we have a new problem that presents mm -hmm. itself at the midpoint. And I think that's just such a great way to think of the midpoint is that previous problem that we've set up at the break into act two which is i need to get home that's kind of solved or at least we're on our way to solving that but now there's a new problem that's even bigger which is i'm going to be erased from existence so i just feel like that's just such a great example of what the midpoint should do oh yeah and what's interesting here too by the way is i feel like it flips you you really said this it's the a story had been get to duck brown so i can go home but now at the midpoint, that becomes the B story. That's kind of in the background. And the mm -hmm. real A story from now on is I've got to save my family and I've got to save myself. And I feel like we often, or I have gotten the note that, this exact note really, that halfway <laughs> through the movie, like the movie switches point of views. Right. And like there's a new problem. And I'm like, well, yeah. <laughs> and... <laughs> But the, the person giving me the note was like, well, that's a problem. How I've just followed this one storyline. How am I going to continue to, I'm going to get confused. It's like, well, I don't think you will. <laughs> I think this yeah. is a perfect example of how that can happen. That's why this is so brilliant because they never lose the storyline. It's still there. Mm -hmm. And Doc kind of becomes that guy who's guiding Marty through 1955. Yeah. And again, you have you have forward momentum from this scene into the next one, where you immediately cut to Marty walking into school, his old school, yeah. now in 1955, and you have Doc basically giving exposition, but doing it in his crazy Doc scientific terminology, which makes it feel okay, where he's like, all right, mm -hmm. according to my theory, you know, unless you repair the damage that you've done with your parents, you're going to go away next. And... That is our intro into Marty going to high school for the first time. And now he has to like infiltrate high school. He has to really actively go after his parents now because of this new problem. Mm -hmm. So the following sequence of events, I actually really love and then appreciated even more in rewatching it because there's kind of this rule, unspoken rule that in the first half of your act two and your 2.1 it's your hero's first attempts at solving their their problem. And it's the first things that really anyone would do to solve their problem. And here you see that exactly, where Marty is like, hey, George, here, meet Lorraine. And Lorraine's like, oh, Marty, I love you. Who cares about George? <laughs> <laughs> and Marty's like, hey, George, you, know, you should really ask Lorraine out. He's just kind of doing these really easy solves to his problem, and it's not working. So the second half of Act 2 is... Marty's going to really have to dig in and do something a bit more dramatic and drastic if he's going to get his parents together. And I just think that's very cool. That's not his first inclination. His first inclination is the easy way. Just like shove my dad at my mom and let, you know, hormones do the rest. Yeah. And he keeps getting himself, as we're going to talk about, in like deeper and deeper shit. Anyway, I'm getting ahead of myself. You're not. I mean, this is it. This is this is the the fun part of that too. You know what's really interesting about this is that you know how like the 2.1 can kind of be called that the proverbial like fun and games? Yeah. And I feel like all of Back to the Future is that. Like it just <laughs> always feels so fun. It really does. And it's because of what you just described. Like it's just every choice he makes 
sort of makes things worse and worse and worse. And that's just kind of fun to watch unfold. So they get into the school. So they get into the school. He see, and He sees his mom. And again, I'm going to sort of talk about the exposition here because exposition is always very hard and often very necessary. And this movie does a really good job at putting that exposition in Doc's mouth. Because at one point, he's like... It's the Florence Nightingale effect. Nurses mm -hmm. falling in love with their patients. And when he sees the enchantment under the sea dance poster, he calls it a, a rhythmic ceremonial ritual. So he's <laughs> he's telling Marty and the audience what needs to happen and what's actually happening. But he's doing it in such a character-driven way that you you don't mind it coming from his mouth. Yeah. Yeah, it's just really interesting because, as you know, I've been working on something where someone kind of gets themselves... Uh, they're in over their head. They're in like uncharted territory. And something I've really been struggling with is finding that character to deliver exposition. Mm -hmm. And I feel like I wish I would have thought of this, you know, many months ago. But Doc <laughs> Brown is like the he's a perfect example of how to deliver information. And every scene he's in, he's not just delivering information. There's also something else happening. Yeah, it's a great lesson in exposition. <laughs> it's okay. I feel like we're reading it for next writer's group. <laughs> That'll be my note. <laughs> this should be a little bit more like Doc Brown. <laughs> like, God damn it, Tasha. <laughs> All right. So Doc is Doc, you know, gives the lay of the land. Stick to your dad like glue. He says, you gotta make sure that they go to that dance together. Mm -hmm. So our next scene is Marty sits with George at the lunch tables. And as we said in Act One, this is true in Act 2, that there's no fat in this movie. Nothing is wasted. So as soon as Marty sits down with George, George is writing sci-fi stories, which is new information to Marty. It's a character thing because he had no idea his dad was creative, and that's pretty cool. Mm -hmm. um, but it will also come into play later. So again, mm -hmm. nothing's wasted. It's awesome. Then Marty proceeds to have a conversation with George because he wants to read it. And George is like, no. And the reason why he says no is the same exact reason that Marty gave to Jennifer when she wanted to put his music out there, which is what if they don't like it? What if they told me I was no good? And I think to me, this is in, in talking about character, because as, as you said, there's not a lot of character, I think, creation in Act 2, but there definitely is an arc. And this yeah. moment is a very key, pivotal moment in that arc because Marty is hearing his words spoken back at him. And you can tell from his reaction that that means something to him. That's kind of changing yeah. the way he thinks about things, which is very cool. Yeah. So this uh, cafeteria scene ends with Biff harassing Lorraine and Marty on instinct stands up to protect his mom, which I think is very cool also in terms of character arcing, because when we first met Marty and his relationship with Biff was to not say anything. He like almost said something, but didn't. And in this moment, because he's fucking with his mom, you're obviously going to stand up and do something. And he knows he's in over his head as soon as he does it, but he does it. And I think that's a big character step forward. Yeah, I actually, <laughs> to agree again, this just makes so much sense why Marty would do this. It's like, hey, that's my mom. You don't fucking sexually harass my mom. Like, which is crazy that this is happening, by the way, that like this, this is the character that, you know, George ends up hiring at the end of the movie, but we'll get to that in the act three. But yeah, um, yeah it's great. The first interaction with Biff. Yeah, I mean, again, it's just another case of no, no scenes are being wasted here. The scene is doing so much and it's really mm -hmm. so small. And I think there's like this weird, 
in almost every scene someone's running out which gives another feeling of forward momentum because as soon as marty looks back george is gone and so that takes us immediately to the next scene of marty chasing after george so there's a lot of this chasing after someone to get to the next scene which i think is kind of a good cheat to make the movie feel forward moving no i think you're absolutely right because there's a moment when marty like goes into a flat out like like sprint after george i don't know if it's literally right after that and george is like get away from me and then marty just like books it and i and i've always caught that when i watched it and again watching i was like dang marty just really takes off and it's a perfect moment because he's so frustrated he just needs his dad to start dating lorraine (laughs) and then you know george isn't having it but he walks in the house he's like not you or anyone from this planet's gonna make me ask out lorraine is that what he says? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he, he does say that. And then that's when Marty checks the photo, which shows us that his brother is almost totally gone at this point. So that's a good, it's just such a great reminder of the stakes that are involved if he doesn't get George to that fucking dance. <laughs> yeah. And then it prompts Marty as a character to do something drastic, which he does in the next scene. Which is really out of character for the rest of the movie, really. Or just like, it's kind of a really bizarre moment where George is asleep in his room, surrounded by sci-fi comics. And Marty puts a Walkman on George and then stands over him in the hazmat suit. And just basically freaks George the fuck out. Um, Mixing Star Wars and Star Trek together. And we don't see the end of that scene, which I think is cool. They cut out of it before Marty really says anything. And it's not until the next scene... When George is again running, <laughs> he's running right at, at the camera, runs to Marty. He's like, I have to ask Lorraine to the dance because this you know, Darth Vader from Planet Vulcan told me I had to. I, d- I just want to say it's really interesting because I feel like in another script and a different version of this, they would show Marty sneaking in, trying to get in and out of the house. So you're absolutely right that it's really interesting. They kind of just like cut in on it. And off, like it just, it could have been a completely different moment if they just showed a little bit more of that, like Marty walking through 1955 with a hazmat suit. Yeah. You don't need it. And, and they never go back to Doc. Like they never go back to Marty explaining his plan to Doc. Right. It's just happening. Yeah. We haven't seen Doc in a few scenes. No, because Doc's off on his own. Yeah. He's doing his thing. We're going to see him soon, though. Yeah. Well, in the next few scenes, it's still all about the parents. So it's it's tr- coaching George to ask Lorraine out. George kind yeah. of fucked up. And then you get, again, one of my favorite scenes, which is the chase scene, where because Marty has, has punched Biff because he's hassling his dad. Yeah. Ha- hassling Lorraine. And you, you get the chase scene where Marty steals the kid's skateboard and grabs on the truck like he did in, in Act 1. And then at one point, Marty gets fucked gets hit by Biff and then Marty or sorry Biff crashes into a manure truck classic yeah which sets many references throughout the next couple movies yeah exactly um and it's kind of funny because Lorraine is like practically orgasmic watching this happen (laughs) (laughs) like she's like breathing really hard yeah She's like, I'm going to find out where Marty lives. So again, cause and effect, right? So I had read, I'm just going to jump in. I was reading about kind of how many people passed on Back to the Future and it said something like 30 companies or, you know, everyone passed on Back to the Future and Disney said it like 
had too many incest moments, obviously based off of Marty and his mom. But it just it's just crazy that this dynamic exists in a movie. And it's so <laughs> like it just it just couldn't happen now. I think it could. Really? It's it's still uncomfortable. It's it's played to be extremely uncomfortable. And then it pays off later when she kisses him and there is no chemistry. See, I don't think it's played to be uncomfortable, actually. I think it's like, yeah, I think, I mean, it's uncomfortable because it's kind of built into the scenes, but I I actually think they, it's like more played into comedy. It is. No, oh, it is. But I guess what I mean is Marty is extremely uncomfortable by it. And so it is funny. I see what you're saying. Like, there's no way you could play that as funny now. Yeah, no, it's not funny anymore. It is funny though. It's funny. just not in this, not not in 2020. Funny. It helps that they're at the same age though, because because it's not pedophiliac or anything, because they're the same age. Yeah. So there's not that weirdness. I don't have a problem with it. I really don't. I honestly, I mean, I'm just saying that like it works in the movie, but I know like if you really start thinking about it and knowing how reluctant people are to take certain chances in the current climate i could right. see that um kind of killing your project a yeah. little bit yeah so this we josh <laughs> and i actually had a bit of an argument about this next scene Not an yeah argument. that's right no it was an argument <laughs> <laughs> so this is scene 20 in the in uh the movie or i guess in act two rather where marty comes back to doc's lab he's pretty confident that he got george to ask lorraine out all's gonna be well and then Lorraine knocks on the door and it's like Mm -hmm. how the fuck did your mom find you and she stalked him and followed him here and she says Mm -hmm. like invading Marty's personal space first of all tells him the kind of man that I want is someone who's strong and can kind of take care of the woman that he loves I want you to ask me to the dance and to me this feels like the break into three where Marty felt like he was in control, everything was going his way, and then suddenly it's way worse than he even thought. And he's going to amp have to amp everything up now to get his parents together because it's not going to happen. And I completely disagree. It is not the break into three, in my opinion. What do you think I will the break t- into three is? I think it's after Ed's... It, it's, what's crazy about this is it's a little ways away from where you're saying, but it's yeah. I think it's when he goes into uh it's after the dance like he plays the music and then he has to get back home and i can kind of see that i guess part of me also sort of is just thinking of rules of story of screenwriting uh which i hate saying because i don't like rules but usually your break into three will come after a low point And the low point prompts your character to have to make new choices that are now thrusting your story into the climax of the movie. And that to me feels like what this moment is, is everything's going fine. Oh shit, everything is way worse than I thought. There's no way I can fix my parents together. I'm going to have to make some serious moves to make this happen. And now we're in the dance and we're like going 100 miles an hour towards our ending. See, to me, that's not the low point. I feel like the low point is when his plan with his mom didn't work and he then gets stuffed into a car and he's like, 
I'm fucked. I can't help myself. I'm out of options. The only way that this can be rectified is if my dad somehow breaks his own arm and spins in some incredible angle and knocks out Biff Tannen. Always my favorite punch in any movie. Yeah, so many weird edits in that. Like, <laughs> but anyway, I can see what you're saying. I, but maybe that's a testament to how great this movie is because there's so many like, like twists and turns where you're like, oh shit, oh shit. That's very true. But there, but there is a definitive break into the third uh, break into three and here, and we're gonna get, to, <laughs> and it's later in, in the, and it's later in the movie. <laughs> So after the break into three at this moment. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> Marty is Marty's new plan is I got to get George to become a fighter. And what's very cool about this moment. And Josh is going to tell us about the arc when we get to act three and how exciting that is. But I think one step in that arc is that in this moment, Marty gives George the line that doc gave him once that he himself reiterates in act one, that if you put your mind to it, you can accomplish anything. Now, if you remember, I freaked out about him having that line because he was saying it while he was distracted by the hot jazzercise girls. That's <laughs> but right. Here, he's very focused and he's giving it with confidence to his own dad, which is yeah. very, very cool. <sighs> Dang, I wrote down a super fucking cool fact that I was going to seamlessly put into this and I forgot to say it. So I'm going to say it now. <laughs> Hit me. Okay. You know when he comes in as uh, Darth Vader that we just talked about two minutes ago? Yeah. The tape is labeled Edward Van Halen. Yeah. Which I thought, I thought was like really weird. And so I did some digging. And as it turned out, the band itself, Van Halen, wouldn't let them use their name. But Eddie Van Halen said, you can use my name. Huh. And so that's why it was Edward Van Halen. I don't know why they didn't put Eddie Van Halen. That's but it was really always weird. Like, it was weird that it said Edward. All right, jump ahead. That was just my my random fact that I got lost in the moment. I was just so excited with everything you've been saying and following <laughs> it along that I forgot to drop it in. <laughs> All right, so now we're back to Doc. And it's been eight scenes since we've seen Doc. Now we're... Out by the clock tower, Doc and Marty are kind of saying their goodbyes here because they know when push comes to shove, things are going to move fast later on. And there's a moment where Marty is about to tell Doc about the Libyans and about how he's killed by the Libyans in the future because Doc's talking about being very excited to travel through time. And of course, he never gets that chance and Marty knows that. But Doc doesn't want to hear it. He doesn't want to hear anything about the future. So that goes unsaid. But it drives Marty to the diner in the next scene where he's writing a letter to Doc about his death, hoping that he'll figure out some way to prevent it when the time comes. So again, cause and effect. Yeah, and I think we may have jumped over this, but there's a time when Marty comes back in, and this is right before Lorraine comes, but when Marty comes back into Doc's place and Doc's watching the camcorder and he sees himself and it was it's a very um, intimate moment, I want to say, between Doc and Marty because... This is where Doc, he's not his like crazy Doc Brown. He's like watching himself. And it's 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 a it's a cool moment to see Marty kind of feel that sorrow, like, oh my God, I gotta tell you something about the future. And he doesn't let him. And so that leads up to the moment you're saying. Yeah, I think that's a really good point because I sort of forget that Doc died in Act One. And 
obviously you don't want anyone to forget that moment and it is a good reminder to bring that back in and they do it very well it's a very small moment and nothing mm -hmm. is actually said which is great yeah. but a lot of subtext is there so yeah that that comes back here again the next scene marty slips that that note into doc's pocket for him to find later and then we're at the dance and this is about 76 minutes into the movie 76 pages into the movie right around where you might find the break into act three perhaps <laughs> <laughs> you know i also i hate to do this but i feel like you left out another important part hit me is when he goes to tell george what the plan is yeah, that's where he's like giving him the confidence line of you got to be a fighter. And if you put your mind oh, to it. Oh, you, you did say that. Oh, I guess I wasn't listening. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> oh, no, you're right. You're right. Josh. <laughs> you're right. I feel like you said something about Back to the Future in there. But yeah, okay. Okay, you're right. All right, we're at the dance. We're at the dance. George is dancing alone. Marty pulls up with Lorraine. And Lorraine's like super into parking with boys, which horrifies Marty. <laughs> Because, mm -hmm. of course, in Act 1, we've set up that she's a nun and that she never talked to boys or called a boy. or She even says, like, parked in a car with boys, right? Yeah. So here she's parking. She's drinking stolen alcohol from her mom. She's lighting up a cigarette. Marty's freaking out. Oh, Marty, you're beginning to sound like my mother. <laughs> <laughs> that was good, right? <laughs> that, was, that was amazing. <laughs> Yeah, that's not right. just like her. Casamigos, man. Helps, helps Casamigos. me out here. Uh, so band, <laughs> band at the dance, they take a break, which feels like whatever, but this actually becomes important. And George also sees the clock and he's late. Again, this mm -hmm. is important because the next series of events happens because everyone is doing the wrong thing. They're not doing what they're supposed to be doing. So Marty was hoping that Lorraine would be, you know, upset <laughs> that he's trying to touch her inappropriately. Instead, yeah. Lorraine's all for it. Uh, here, Lorraine leans in, kisses Marty. He freaks out. And that's when she pulls back and is like, something's wrong. It's like, I'm kissing yeah. my brother. And then someone comes in and we think it's George, but it's Biff because George is late. Can I just say, I think that moment with Lorraine, it's like, it salvages everything. Like it takes yeah. away the incest of it all. It takes away, it's like, thank God that moment happens. Otherwise, this would have been really creepy when Marty gets back home. I totally agree with you. <laughs> you need that moment. You absolutely need that moment. And this is a really small thing that I noticed just because I was thinking about cause and effect in this moment where Biff jumps in the car to basically rape Lorraine and his buddies are watching, which prompts yeah. Biff to shut the door for privacy. So again, this yep. kind of cause and effect idea is that this now allows for what happens next to happen that George mistakes Biff for Marty because he can't see Biff, right? So he closes the door. So these tiny things all add up to just mistaken identity. It's kind of like Shakespearean in its way of people sort of all doing the wrong thing to create the the situation that we have now. So Biff's buddies, they grab Marty, they throw him in the back of the car and it's the car of the band who's on break, which is great mm -hmm. because now they kind of step in for Marty and chase off Biff's buddies. And Again, because Marty is locked in the trunk of this car, this does kind of feel like another low point because now- Does kind of feel like a- Or kinda. is the low point. Yeah. <laughs> this is like, oh my God, there. this is done. This is done. Marty's dead. That's what it feels like. Yeah. All right. I hear you. 
especially because George now runs out. And again, because he's late. Mm-hmm. And he does what he's supposed to do. And it's Biff. And he almost leaves because he's like, oh, shit. I'm sorry, Biff. Do your thing. But Lorraine is in so much trouble that he actually now genuinely has to be brave in this moment. Yeah. I think that is just such a cool character growth for him. And the acting is so great here where you can you can see that he now has to embrace that part of him for real. And he punches Biff. Biff gets him in an arm hold. George is fucked. Lorraine is fucked. Marty's fucked. And that's how we leave this scene, which mm-hmm. is great. Yeah. And we jump right back to Marty and the band is trying to get him out of the trunk with a screwdriver and the guitar player kind of slips and he busts his hand in the process, which this feels super random, but because we know this script is genius, it's yep. not random. <laughs> you know what else is really cool is that it's Biff's friends who kind of instigate the guys. Yeah. It's just so cool that it's like this gang of bullies that just Billy Zane and whoever the fuck else is in Billy it. Zane in his first movie role. <laughs> looking amazing yeah billy zane and he and it's it's those little things that seem so obvious but you know in a lesser kind of movie it would be like they hear marty pounding in the on the hood and they come back around and then he slips and hurts his hand yeah in this original script actually the band beat up biff's guys and that's how he hurts his hand is by punching one of the guys in the head oh geez yeah the original was much darker, and Marty is, in Act 2 in particular, he's such a whiny brat, so the changes they made to make Marty more likable, very well received. Thank you for that. <laughs> yeah, the the uh, Eric Stoltz original. Yeah. Anyway. Okay. So Marty, they, they get Marty out of the car, and he bolts off to help his mom, but at that point, as soon as he arrives, George finally bucks up and he sees Lorraine on the ground and decides he's going to really save her and does that awesome hook shot, whatever that is. Clocks. Roundhouse. (laughs) It's round. I think it's called a roundhouse. Hook shot. shot. (laughs) (laughs) That's an actual punch. A hook shot. Are you sure that's not a basketball shot? Hook. I take kickboxing, man. I know. Haven't you played Mortal Kombat? (laughs) Roundhouse is a kick. Get your shit together. Oh, shit. <laughs> oh, man. All right. Moving on. Fuck. <laughs> we are not editing that out. <laughs> so right when Marty arrives, everyone is kind of gathering around like they did for Marty when he kicked Bitch uh-huh. butt earlier and they're like oh who is that guy marty pulls out the photo we think everything's gonna be great everyone's gonna be back in the photo but his sister is now totally gone shit future is not yet fixed marty runs off again so much running from place to place but we take a small break go back to the clock tower check in on doc brown the storm is coming so there's a ticking clock reminder here that marty doesn't have much time left right at the time marty realizes he needs to get his shit together because things aren't going the way he plans. So yeah, it's the double ticking clock. It's amazing. Yes. Well said. Totally. And ticking clocks are so hard too. (laughs) This does it so well. Yeah. 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 They're like, here's two of them just in case you need an extra one. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Like they're nothing. Like you're handing out candy to a baby. Here, take your. Oh yeah. We're we're good. We could put a third one if we wanted, but we won't. (laughs) 
<laughs> damn it. So <laughs> Marty runs back to the band and he's like, oh my God, you guys got to get back in there. My parents have to have their first kiss and they can't kiss without music. But the guitar player's hand has been sliced up. Cause and effect. Mm-hmm. Dance is over. Unless you know somebody who can play the guitar. Boom. Cut right to Marty playing the guitar. Earth Angel. Earth Angel. I'm not going to sing that. Um, no, you just did. But yeah. <laughs> so everything seems like it's going great but then of course someone cuts in on george and just it's a really weird moment like is this a real thing that happens where a dude cuts in and starts just like yanking lorraine around and like laughing do you remember that moment oh of course i remember it is a really strange moment and but i i feel like why it's so important is because it needs to reinforce that the moment with Biff wasn't a fluke. And now George is going to stand up for himself and you don't take my woman. I'm going to push you the fuck down and run for class president. (laughs) (laughs) That is actually exactly why it's there. That's really smart. Yeah. It's not a fluke. And it's awesome because that's like another low point where it just, it's like, oh no, now this again, like it's, I can't even, I can't remember watching this for the first time, but if I was an adult watching this for the first time, I would have so much anxiety. It would probably be like how I felt watching like Endgame or something like that, where I'm just like, oh God, please just finish up, please. (laughs) Totally. I actually do remember this moment when he, like his hand becomes see-through and he's starting to disappear. I was like, oh God, like they're it's it how is this movie going to possibly end this is insane yeah. and then- how is he going to play the guitar with a disappearing hand <laughs> so he's like and marty's basically dying on stage by the way and george finally comes back and just pushes the guy off the rain and kisses her and it's so great marty just like pops up like a mm-hmm. jack in the box photo goes back to normal and yeah. randomly this is this is real random when you think about it. This is not in the original script, by the way. The lead singer of the band, the whole crowd, they want something that really cooks. So Marty gets mm-hmm. up there and he just plays an oldie from where he comes from. And he plays Johnny Be Good. And yeah. in the script, the original script, it says he does play Johnny Be Good, but he also plays a couple other songs as well. So, But they make a huge meal out of this where Marty goes rogue on stage. He, you know, the cousin, the guitar player, calls his cousin Chuck Berry, who, of course, originally yeah. recorded Johnny Be Good, holds up the phone. You get a whole thing yeah, because, here. Well, this is like one of the most important moments of the scene, I feel, because this is now redemption for Marty at the talent show in the very beginning when he was basically booed off stage, even though he kind of gets booed off stage again when he starts going into like the heavy metal stuff. But... It it's such a great moment for Marty to have that redemption to kind of be like, people do like my music, even though it was ripped off from Chuck Berry. And I do wonder if Chuck Berry would have come up with that own song or his own song if Marty hadn't played it. But we won't go down that road. <laughs> but it's a very important moment for Marty. It is. And I guess that's that's exactly why it's not in the original script, because Marty was not he liked rock and roll, but he was not that wasn't a big part of his character music Mm. and playing and i think josh this brings us back to him exploding the amp in act one so i feel like it all really does connect to the giant really in act one because he's playing so loud and the amp kind of like doesn't explode at the end but it totally like goes crazy at the end of the song that's true all connected 
Oh my God, I just realized something. Am I making you continue to talk about this because I think that the break into three is coming up here very shortly? Or are you still, because would we have stopped this episode like a couple minutes ago? Yes. (laughs) Shit. We have to do a double double break into act three. We have to get to what Josh thinks is the break into act three. Well, now that I'm really thinking about it, I might be wrong. But let's hey, keep going. Don't back down now. No, fuck <laughs> it. This is a break into act three. It's coming up here in just a second. So Marty pops off the stage and uh, Lorraine tells him I'm going to go home with George. Marty's like, great. Lorraine says... Oh, Marty, that's such a nice name as she's thinking about potential kids. And now Mm -hmm. we're about 90 minutes, 90 pages into the movie. And the A story, the saving the family, is now done. It's time for the B story to take over. It's time to go home. And so that's where Josh believes is the break into Act 3. Right? Yes, that is. Yeah, I feel like Marty has accomplished what he needs to accomplish with his parents. And now we're on to a whole other thing, and that is getting Marty back home. Because up until this point, it's been about getting his parents back together. And now I need to get back home, and the only way I can get back home is by, oh, wait, I don't want to spoil it. You're going to have to listen to the next episode. But no, it's it's like I need to get, I need to go. I need to get myself home now. That's my break into act three. And he literally runs out the door and runs into the next scene. Um, But we are going to stop there because that is what we think is the end of Act 2. Well, at least one of us (laughs) thinks is the end of Act 2. Yeah. I mean, thinking about it, as everyone knows, like what we're getting into with the third act, it seems really rushed. But I think, like it seems like a small third act, but I think once we talk about it, Mm -hmm. we're going to realize that actually it's a very incredibly well done third act that has a lot of highs and lows that it seems like one big climax, but it actually is a lot of twists and turns. Ooh, I'm excited. I haven't rewatched the act three and and specifically looked at it for this reason for a real long time. Yeah. Well, and just in conclusion, I feel like the theme of this episode has been cause and effect, Yeah. which will all pay off in act three. It's a perfect cause and effect second act. It is. It's a really, it's a really big lesson. The, Obviously, the reason I struggle with Act 2, writing Act 2 myself, is oftentimes it's because I get distracted by plot. Because I know I need to get my character to point B, point Act Mm 3. And I just need to get him there. And I forget to take a step back and make sure that my characters individually within a scene are doing things that cause them to go into the next scene, to go into the next scene. And that's the hard part. That's the hard part of writing. And I think this movie, if you dissect it, can give you a lot of great lessons on how to pull that off in a really organic way. Mm-hmm. So that's it. Wow, we did this it. Movie's amazing. It's so good. Wow. I'm excited for the next one. Also unofficially sponsored by Casamigos. <laughs> it's another Friday, another breakdown <laughs> episode. Yeah. <laughs> Calls for Casamigos. Soon. All right. So yeah. we'll wrap up with the quote of the day. If you don't set everything up in the beginning, you'll pay for it in the middle or in the end. So I'd rather pay for it at the beginning. Robert Town. Please remember to rate and subscribe. And as always, the Act 2 podcast is a production of Act 2, a network and support group for the everyday working screenwriter. This episode was edited by Paul Lundquist. Music by 414 Beg, which you can find on Spotify. 